This podcast is also part of a pod course, which is available for credit on speechtherapypd.com. All you need to do is register for the course, complete the requirements, and you will receive credit. Speechtherapypd.com is a video continuing education company, a certified ASHA CE provider. folks, and welcome to First Bite, Fed, Fun, and Functional. I'm your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MSCCC SLP, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast was, like most creative processes, birthed from a combination of a several cups of coffees and honestly, even more questions posed by a series of impassioned graduate students that I've had the pleasure of supervising over the last several years. First Bite's mission to answer those questions that we've all had, but we've either been too afraid to ask or we didn't have the subject matter expert saved to our own personal speed dials. So, do you too have more questions and answers when it comes to treating your medically complex and fragile pediatric patients? Are you unsure if the signs and symptoms that you're observing are indicative of an allergy, maybe an underlying GI issues, or could they possibly be neurologically driven? How many questions do you really have for that registered dietitian regarding the formulas prescribed and the flow rate through that patient's G-tube? Have you ever been consulted for a quote-unquote difficult latch only to find out that the mother is exclusively breastfeeding, but you've never nursed a little one or worked with the breastfed patient before? And what about functional communication? Are you so over flashcards, but you need advice on how to get started with core vocabulary with a non-speech-generating device or how to find the right fit for a speech-generating device? Do you have additional worries about the basic day-to-day running and documentation of your private practice? How do you go about obtaining referrals or even documenting that note so that the insurance company deems it medically necessary? If you answered yes, well, then come join me, Michelle Dawson, for this dynamic podcast presented by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Who am I, you ask? Well, I'm a self-described SLP geek with, as my family says, a touch of the ADD and ADHD. I have a passion for serving the least of these, namely the most complex and involved pediatric patients in their natural environment through my private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, in the Columbia, South Carolina metro area. I also have had the pleasure, and currently still am, traveling the country where I lecture on best practices for pediatric dysphagia and functional language acquisition delivered through an early intervention natural environment model. Are you still intrigued? Then come join me as I interview some amazing folks. And don't forget that you can submit questions for a Q&A or interview request topics to me via email at firstbite at speechtherapypd.com or on our Facebook page. And also check out our website, drop a review, subscribe to obtain those coveted ASHA CEUs. All right, folks, let's get right to it. Welcome back to First Bite, Fed, Fun, and Functional Resources for the Pediatric Clinician. I'm your host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Pediatric SLP. The topic of today falls in the functional category with emphasis on interprofessional practice between the IFSP and the IEP teams. 
in that light. We have joining us today the one and only Ms. Karina McComb, early childhood special education teacher in the Columbia, South Carolina metro area. This sweet friend of mine and I have had numerous conversations over the years regarding continuity of care for individual cases, cases that we treat, troubleshooting access to process improvements for AAC devices, as well, and probably most importantly, just venting the raw emotions um, may or maybe not be over a glass of wine when we witness communication breakdowns between IFSP and IEP teams that result in injustices to the little ones we serve. Karina is a fierce advocate, and she's joined us today to spread the good news, in case you haven't heard it yet, that with functional strategies, teamwork between IFSP and IEP teams is possible. So Karina, thank you for joining me. It's my pleasure. Hi, lady. Happy to be here with you. Well, thank you. Now, um, talk to me a little bit about you. I know a little bit about you, but those listening in don't. So talk to me about your walk and how you landed in the early childhood special education classroom. Well, I graduated in 2003 from Coastal Carolina University in Conway, South Carolina, and had my early childhood degree and one class in special education. And at that time, there was not a lot of positions available, and I landed in early childhood special education and wasn't sure it was the place for me and ended up loving it, falling for it. And 14 years later, I'm still there. I spent six years in a classroom and then spent five years with the birth to fives population. And now I'm back in a classroom for my, for the third year. So combination of a bunch of different experiences worked with countless teams of IEP teams, IFSP teams. I've been the parent. We are special therapeutic foster parents. So we have a special needs foster child that lives with us. So I've been on the parent side of the table, the teacher side of the table, and a member of the team as an advocate. Um, Ended up going back to school through Grand Canyon University and getting my individually designed master's in special education. And here I am. And um, these kids are just, they have my heart and forever and always I'll be their advocate as much as I can. So I'm glad to be here and able to talk about how we can all work together to make things great for our little people. Yes. And and I have had the pleasure of seeing you act as all three. Act as the early interventionist. Um, different states call that role different. Um, I've heard it as a service coordinator, an early interventionist. Uh, it just depends where you are in the nation as to what that role is. I've seen you in action as the special education teacher in the early childhood classroom. And you in an IEP meeting, you're going to fight for your babies. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> and then um, I've had the pleasure of seeing you as, um, as a medically fragile involved foster mom advocating for your little. And that you, I love how you love. It's beautiful to watch. So, um, so there it is. All right. So in that light, because you have all these real life experiences, um, and because you and I have had personal experiences where we have seen kids fall through the cracks, um, I, I want to kind of hit the ground running. Um, what is, in your opinion, the the biggest breakdown between the infant family service plan when it transitions from the birth to three 
to the Part C process to the Part B process, the IEP, the Individualized Education Plan. Where do you see that breakdown occurring? I think the biggest thing is during the IFSP process, parents have a tremendous amount of support from the professionals who are involved in their child's life. So the speech therapists and the OTs and the PTs and the early interventionists are all in their homes and know those families inside out. And when they come into school, if you don't get the right teacher, you don't get the right communication, we really don't learn our families and what additional supports beyond sending their kid to school Monday through Friday they might need. And, you know, finding out that a transport chair was ordered for a family that didn't have bus tie downs on it. So they can't use the new wheelchair. They have to use the old wheelchair. That's something that the early interventionists would know because they're in the home and they see it and they say, wait a second, something's missing. But in the classroom, unless the parent chooses to share that with me, I don't really see those things. Um, so I think the big breakdown is that that services changes in, in early intervention, services are are more rehabilitative based and it's easier to get the OT and the PT and the speech services where school has to look at it through a lens and it, through the educational lens. So, so a child who qualifies for and parents don't totally understand that. And it's a very hard line to explain to our families. I really feel like one of the biggest things is that when you come to the table, if the parents don't invite the IFSP team, we never know necessarily who they are. Um, I've had the great fortune of your families have invited you to attend meetings with them. And you being at the table helps our speech therapist at school as well as us to be able to make a better communication plan for everybody working together towards a common goal um, instead of having one goal for school, a different goal for private therapy, and a whole other goal that the parents are thinking they want in that realm. Um, so I think it's it's a big breakdown in the our families and then how well we can support them because we don't know what really what supports they need because we're not there in the home and seeing the things they go through so on on the home health side because I mean it's been a long time since I worked in the public schools I mean I did that when I was fresh out and getting my master's but on the home health side we um sometimes have a hard time getting invited or feeling that we're invited to IEP meetings because families don't know that they're allowed to bring advocates. And then when we do come, a lot of people assume that we're there to start a fight, to stir the pot when we just genuinely want to communicate, hey, this is what we're doing at home. This is what works. This doesn't work. I know this kid. These are trigger points. Um, this is how you help calm them, get them back to center. So what would you recommend for any school SLPs that are listening or any um, home health SLPs that are listening? How do we build a bridge there? I think one of the biggest things is because your first interaction is during that IEP meeting, most of the time with the teacher and the rest of the team, when you walk in, instead of coming in and immediately jumping into the meat of the IEP, as you go around and introduce yourself, 
I think it would be great if you said, you know, hi, I'm Michelle Dawson. I've been working with, you know, this child for three years and I've gotten to know a lot of really great things about him that I think might be able to support as we plan here today for his school time. Um, just kind of letting you in your introduction, them know, like, look, I'm here on the same page as you. Um, and I think that goes for any therapist that's in, and we don't know the kids a lot of times when a three-year-old comes to me as a new preschooler, all I know is what the evaluation results show. I don't know anything about them as a human being and where their world is Okay, so beyond that. When, um, that during that initial, um, during that initial handoff and, and we have some veterans like, <laughs> like myself and yourself that have worked in all the settings, but, um, you know, we got folks here that have only worked in one setting. Who can are, who can they anticipate at that first intake IEP meeting? Like when the, when they go for placement and to develop the IEP, who are some of the people that they can possibly anticipate sitting at that table and what are their roles? Typically the team includes the the special education teacher, whether they're going to the classroom or not, there'll be a special education teacher at the table. There'll be a general education teacher of early childhood um, because general education has to be represented at all meetings. You'll have a um, LEA or district representative. What They're is the LEA ones that, for those that don't know what LEA stands for? Um, I cannot remember the act. I'm really bad. I'm sorry. But they <laughs> That's basically, my fault. I put you, Johnny, on the spot. <laughs> you did too. It's all your fault. But they are basically a district representative who can help to um, allocate funds or say, yes, we can do this or no, we can't as far as... Um, helping to provide certain services or, you know, maybe need to say, okay, well, we want to look into that, but it's not something I can say right here, right now, but I have the authority to investigate that further than the classroom teacher can. Um, So typically you'll have an LEA. They sometimes are the principal or assistant principal from the school. Um, Sometimes you'll see um, them as well as the consultant for the preschool program there. So it's any number of people there. So we have a consultant who is over our preschool program. And typically by the time parents get to the IEP meeting, they've met that person at least once in the evaluation process. Um, The school psychologist will be there. Any relevant therapists as far as OT, PT, and speech that have been screened or tested, as well as potentially vision therapy, hearing intervention teachers. Um, But most of the people at the table will be the team that they've met through the evaluation process. Um, as far as the OT that te- that screened them is typically the one who's going to be at the IEP meeting. Speech therapist, the same thing. Sometimes the speech therapist that is at the school will also attend. So you might see two speech therapists. That team is a really big team. Um, and I, I feel like it could probably be kind of daunting to someone who's never been there before or even a rookie professional that's going, oh, my gosh. And now, you know, even myself walking into my first IEP meeting as a parent, like I was like, oh, my gosh, they have like 11 people at the table. And here's little old me. And I know what I'm doing. And I've been in IEP meetings before. But being on that other side was like, oh, um, it, it kind of, you know, raises your blood pressure and your heart goes in your throat. So really having it's a big team of people that some of them have met the child some have not 
Um, and it's really, it's a, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot of people come in with your questions or your talking points written down because you're going to walk in and you're going to do like I did and your heart's going to drop to your stomach and you're going to go, oh my gosh, I can't do this. And if you have that list to refer back to of like the three big things that you really want to talk about and see addressed or that have gone good or gone poorly or this does not work and it's going to make things a whole lot worse if you try it versus this works really well as far as, you know, y'all have been with them in the homes for the home health providers during their first few years of life. And some of you, since they've been infants, some, it might've only been six months, but regardless, you have additional knowledge that we don't have even of the child. So it could be something that maybe isn't included in the IEP, but you say, Hey, just FYI, these are some things that would help you out in your classroom and during your day. Okay. So in in that light, um, I know you and I ran into a situation um, not too long ago where... Um, about a year, this time about, last year. <laughs> <laughs> it just took us this long to pay it forward, baby. Um, uh, we ran into a situation where... And sometimes our families shoot it to us straight. We walk in the door, they lay out past medical history when we're doing our PMH during our eval. Um, sometimes our families omit information because they don't understand what the physicians, their specialist and the medical team have shared with them. Sometimes the families of the kids that we're treating omit information because they don't understand that you know, what may be important for the OT or the PT is as pertinent information for the speech pathologist. And sometimes our families um, withhold information for various reasons, including fear, anger, denial, frustrations. Um, and and we ran into that, um, you and I personally, and it had to do with um, certain conditions and certain medications that um, family members gave to that a, a patient's family member gave to um, certain parties at the school and certain parties at the home health team that when we put it together, we realized the child was incredibly more involved and medically fragile, even from a positioning standpoint that could have done um, detriment to her well-being. So now you and I know each other and we both had consent to release information, but had we not had, um, I mean, clearly we would have consent to release information, but had we not known each other, how would you recommend that we relay that information? Because, I mean, that information changes everything from the plan of care to the IEP. So what what's your recommendations there? Typically, when in an IEP meeting, one of the first things we do is go through their history and go through their child's, the diagnoses that we've been told about. So as we go through what we know, kind of look at what you know and say, well, what about this? Or, and maybe write yourself notes so that mom doesn't get, because obviously there's a reason the parent told the school and not you. So maybe write yourself a note. Hey, I didn't know about that vision issue or I didn't know about that. So that the next time you're talking to mom, not with 16 people around the table, you can kind of bridge that and say, hey, when we were in that meeting at school, I heard this. What's mm -hmm. going on with that? And then 
be able to talk to the family too about it. They don't necessarily have to share the information with the IEP team if they don't want to share with all 16 people in that big old room. If you talk to them after the meeting, it's important to say to them, you know, hey, you told me about these things. When you meet with the school nurse, because most of our children have some sort of a health plan and some sort of nursing services, you really should mention those because they may play into some things at school and how things are done at school. Um, I, I think it's important that you listen. If you do have the consent to release information to the school at that point, you might want to go to the nurse and say, you know, I know during the meeting we talked about these things, but mom also said these things at home so that the nurse can kind of follow up with the doctors mm -hmm. because ultimately someone will give us a complete diagnosis list. Somebody on that child's team medically or from everybody will have something. Mm -hmm. So it's important to not put the parent on the spot, but have a conversation you know, maybe talk to the teacher and say, hey, you know, Miss McCollum, can you stay with us just a minute when the rest of the team dismisses and get together on <clears throat> the medical things? IEPs can always be changed. We can always come back to the table if the doctor gives us limitations on how physical therapy or speech therapy or feeding or any of those things can be done and it is going to impact their goals. So we can always come back as a smaller team once they're qualified and they're in and we get all of the medical straight through physicians and the nurse and everything else. So I think it's important to help parents understand that we're all here together. We're all on the same team and hopefully walking out at the end of the meeting, everybody will feel more, okay, we're all working towards this goal of creating communication or creating a, a communication system for this child. And we acknowledge that things might be a little bit different, you know, at home than they are at school, but that, you know, we'll do what we can to make this a smooth transition for their child. Okay. See, this is what I love about you. You just make it all very clear. <laughs> all right. Now, I have, I've worked with um, clinicians from other school districts, you know, the SLPs on, um, on the team. And I have noticed that each school district in our local area does things differently, which, I mean, they're their own, you know, local entity. But there does not seem to be a consistent way for the home health SLP and the school SLP and the school um, early childhood special ed teacher to be able to communicate together. So what I have found is a really good way to kind of get the ball rolling is a lot of times um, the ECSE teacher um, has a notebook that they write like their daily notes in like, you know, hey, so and so you know, Billy Bob Joe did this today or um, Susie Q Ladybug did this today. And when I'm at the house, I'll say, hey, they send a note home with some notebooks and I'll just throw down my notes. We're working on this. We've been using this AAC device. We really enjoy um, this core vocabulary and to add in either my business card or my cell phone number. And that kind of like opens the door for the, you know, more frequent, maybe once a week, once a month access. Um, how, 
how would you recommend that we set that up? Because it's all well and good to come to the IEP meeting the one time to kind of get it started. But it's that continuous continuity of care that helps these kids reach their fun- functional goals faster. Um, I, I think the biggest is to, for I think first, you have to make sure that the parent has the consent to release information signed both from mm-hmm. school and, you know, and from you. And I think sending that maybe along with your business card will help, especially for those teachers that are saying, well, I can't talk to them. They just sent me their business card. I don't have any, mm-hmm. you know, mom, let them write in the book. That's fine. They can write in the book. And, you know, I think it's also really important that the um, communication is both ways. And I think that maybe just like developing a schedule and saying, Hey, you know, I see, you know, Billy Bob on Tuesdays for their speech appointments, you know, with me. And I see them at this time. And I've known our speech therapist to call the parent during that hour time and spend 10 minutes on the phone with the, with the SLP that's at home health and have a little mini conversation Um, And sometimes that in itself is a good starting block to getting back and forth communication. Um, It's also, it's also really important to just not give up because sometimes, and I can speak to this from my teacher perspective, you know, I have 12 notebooks to write in and I wrote in all of them and I read your note at 730 this morning when everybody got there. And I didn't forget about you, but I forgot to respond to you. (laughs) Um, So, you know, most of the time our parents have our email addresses too. And so you could say, hey, let me have that teacher's email address. She didn't respond to me. And legitimately, I'm going to tell you nine out of 10 times, if you email me, I'm going to say, I am so sorry. I forgot to write back to you. I I am I'm the queen of that I'll read a text message and I'll start talking aloud to the text message and then not ever actually type back so yes it at life happens it gets in the way I get it (laughs) yes so you know just making sure that you don't just give one effort I think that you know knowing this therapist at the school um you know I've worked with therapists who are still working on getting their C's and they're still so new to the whole school and IEP world. It's not that they don't care about the home health world, but they're trying to to grasp everything that's going on at school. So like that first month, they're not going to respond to you because the first month of school is chaos and they're trying to figure out their schedule with 60 kids. But then like once the ball gets rolling and everything starts flowing, they might be more likely to say, yeah, I can talk to that Michelle person now. Um, <laughs> you know, but I know that like it, it oftentimes it takes us a good two or three weeks to get in the swing with the schedule and in the swing and whether they're coming in in August or they're coming in in September or a you know January baby who's turning three, it takes us a little time to adjust and make our days you know working and at that time is probably the time we most need to reach out to you, but we're just trying to get through (laughs) Um, depending on how many are starting. And I also, I always send home at the beginning of the school year with my families an interest inventory on their child. And it says, what things do they, I always send, it's like, what things do I like? What things don't I like? What these things make me sad. These things make me happy. 
Um, let me let me clarify for those that don't know. Um, you specialize in treating, and your classroom typically has the um, multiple disability, um, severe complex caseload. So a lot of the children that you work with on a day-to-day basis, they may not be able to verbally articulate or have um, a functional means of communication like ASL or an AAC device to be able to communicate that. So, yeah. And okay. even even a typical four-year-old, uh, you know, they can tell you a little bit of those things, mm-hmm. but sometimes their parents have that insight into this really ticks them off so we don't expose them to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think it's always important and it's a good way to start that communication with parents that like, I really care about your whole kid, not just the goals in the IEP. Um, so that would be another way to get the speech therapist. If you're a school speech therapist, it's the beginning of the year, maybe have a little, you know, survey that you send home with the, your students' parents to say, um, you know, what ways are they communicating at home? What things do they really like to communicate for? Um, because And do they have a private speech therapist? And what is their contact information? And then also including in that 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 in a you know line that says I give you permission to contact them and let the parent sign it so you have all of that on one piece of paper to say you know these are the ways that they're communicating they work with Michelle Dawson and this is how I can get in touch with her and talk to her and reach out um it's I think it's harder for the home health person to get into the school Mm-hmm. than it is for us as the school to reach out to you all. Because first of all, you guys are all over the place. You're <laughs> next to impossible to get in touch with sometimes. You are in eight homes in a day. And I did it as an early interventionist. And you start off on the road at 630 in the morning and you come home at 630 at night some days. And you're just so I always found the best way to get in touch with with you and any other therapist that works in homes that I've ever worked with has been email, text message, something that is not related to what time we're available. Mm -hmm. So I can send you an email after I get done working with a kid and then you can send it back to me at 12 o'clock at night when you have a minute after your kids go to bed to respond. (laughs) Yes, because it's a well-documented event that most SLPs don't sleep. Although I heard a rumor that there's a Facebook um, type B SLP page. Uh, I have yet to see it, but I've heard that it's in existence. But um, (laughs) yeah, no, I mean, look at the dates in our email train. We're, We're up at, you know, all hoot owls of the hours of the night. Okay. All right. And then I'm going to email you back at five in the morning because that's when I'm getting ready for my day. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. But see, that's what makes it a good team. Okay. So I, I, on our end, I mean, you know, and I, and home health SLPs, a lot of us go the home health route, um, especially after we have kids because we get a little bit more flexibility. I mean, I had two preemies, home health just fit for me. And much like you, I, I didn't really plan on going into early childhood. I didn't really plan on going into special needs, but it was like a vortex of awesomeness that just like sucked me in. And then, yes, yes that's what it, it's the vortex of awesomeness and you can't escape and then you don't want to escape. And then you're just you're there and it fits and it feels good. But and that's how home health happened for me. It, it fit and it felt good. But 
on our end, it can be the most isolating experience. And I know that you get that because you you go in and you see the home, you see the kid, you see their family, and you're there in that moment. But you walk out the door and you will carry with you the emotional baggage because sometimes we go into the houses and they have what? No toys, barely enough food in the kitchen cabinet. They might have a mattress for a couch and y- y- you know... And, and you don't want to bring a point of embarrassment to that, but you need to help that family as a familial unit to basically like survive. So you're calling the early interventionists and saying, Hey, what community supports do we have? And you don't want to bring that up in an IEP meeting because you don't want to embarrass or call attention to the family. And you're correct. We need to have that as a sidebar communication Um, with the school SLP or the school principal, because I know in the home health early intervention world, a lot of times there's community supports to get a little more food on the table or get a little bit of Christmas going. And in the schools, we have free and reduced lunch. There's, um, you know, the angel on the Christmas tree, the families can be adopted. But we also get impatient when we're in the home health world because, We are, you have maybe five minutes for a phone call and we don't always, we're not always as diligent doing that continuity of care because we see what, 25, 30 kids a week, easy. And then, you know, driving in between and we're always, but I've yet to meet a home health therapist who's not behind on paperwork. And if you are that unicorn, please call in and tell us what your magical trick is. (laughs) (laughs) I've never met a, a classroom teacher who's not behind on paperwork either. Um, I am proud to say that all of my progress reports are finished. All of my stuff is turned in for the end of the year. That's because they gave us deadlines and dates and it had to be done. So like it was done at it was done at the 19th hour, but it's done. So you you too have earned your glass of mommy juice, friend. Congratulations. Thanks. But, yes. but um <laughs> As I point to you on the camera. Um, so on, on that note, when this actually does happen, and it can happen, and we can have good continuity of care because you and I have both witnessed that. Um, what what does that look like? What are the positive effects for the little ones that we treat? G- give me some examples of when our team members work together and they're able to first have that consent to release of information signed, and then second able to establish a good working report. What happens next? Describe that beauty for those that Um, get to see it. I think that the best thing that happens in, in, from the teacher perspective is that I am able to see the child for a lot more things and know a lot more about where to go with the child, where they've been, um, what sometimes looks like to us like they didn't make a ton of progress this year is really a ton of progress from, you know, in comparison to how much they made the year before. When you look at, you know, they moved from two months to four months last year, but this year they went from four months to 10 months. So they really gained a lot this year. Um, I think the coolest is if the assistive technology team can get involved and we can get the kids similar devices at school Um, uh, some of my students have devices at home that the parents are not willing to send to school because they're afraid 
they're going to get lost, they're going to get broken, whatever the case may be. So to get a similar device at school that the child can access um, with core this year. Yes. This year, we actually started using some low tech assistive tech with our kids and I send home core vocabulary just like you would send home spelling words <laughs> for my kids. And we have two or three words that go with every one of our books. And we work on assigning a picture and using it in communication. So we ended up with 18 words this year, but we didn't start the curriculum till November. So I feel like 18 words in six months is pretty darn good. That's um, awesome. <laughs> and not all my kids know all the words but they are starting to use them functionally and use them to request things. Um, and I couldn't have done that without working with the SLP at my school without the parents and the people at home working on things and doing things. Um, simple things like helping get new chairs, like you said, food on the table for Christmas. Um, you know, our school guidance counselor, our social workers for different districts do it different ways. Some have for the school, some have per programs. We have a preschool psych, a preschool social worker who works with all of the preschools in the district. Um, and we do families helping families to help kids get Christmas if they're struggling with that. Um, and sometimes our parents will open up to them about things that they wouldn't necessarily tell us. Mm -hmm. Um so when everybody kind of communicates and works together, I see kids that don't just thrive at school. They thrive overall. They generalize skills more quickly. They, they aren't doing it in the box of my classroom, but not at home. They're doing it in their classroom, at home, at church, in the grocery store. Um, I can't tell you how many parents I've told. They're like, my kid hates the grocery store. It's horrible. <laughs> and it's I said, well, make them... <laughs> make them a picture list of six things that you need to get at the grocery store and put them on a scavenger hunt to find them, but put them in an order that the first thing is you're going to be close and they're going to see something periodically along the way where the last thing is on the way to the register, yes. you know, so they have to find an apple and at the very end, they got to find the gallon of milk. And so then, the, and the parents say, I did that trick. It worked so good, <laughs> you know, and the kids were able to either hand a picture or point to the picture or whatever it was, but it gave them something to do besides have a hissy fit. And they got through Publix, you know, or whatever grocery store they were shopping at without major issue for the first time in eons. You know, I had one family who told me the kid always had to go straight to the free cookies at the grocery store. Um, and she couldn't go in for anything unless he got a cookie. And I said, well, you've got to make him work for the cookie, you know? So we changed how they went to the grocery store and they went the opposite way of the cookies that if he did what he needed to do and help through the store, he could get the cookie at the end. And, you know, slowly she was able to get to where she could finally run in and get a gallon of milk on the left side of the store without going to the bakery on the right side of the store to get a free cookie. So, you know, it just... When you work together and everybody's talking, the, the, the generalization of skills and the stopping of behavioral outbursts and things like that becomes a more global thing for the child that not just isolated to certain people or certain environments. It just becomes part of their norm and their routines. So it's really awesome.
Oh, beautiful. Well, um, one, I might need to try that cookie trick with my three-year-old because there's a cookie store or cookies in um, one of the grocery stores that we go to and they give away his favorite animal cookies. And yeah, I'm going to soak that point up. Um, <laughs> hmm. um, now, one thought on my end, and you touched on it, and um, for... For me, on my side, it's that continuity of um, AAC and AT. And yes. that that's that's a biggie because a lot of the kids that I see that have complex feeding issues also have complex communication issues brought on by like uh, a stroke or yeah, a, a TBI or whatever the etiology is. And I struggle with, in the home health setting, we don't have access to... Um, or quick or easy access to communication devices and an AAC team. We are flying blind. We have to think on our feet. And we are supposed to, in the early intervention home health setting, only utilize what is available in the natural environment. Now, we're blessed. We, we live in South Carolina, and um, Dr. Carol Page and in her infinite wisdom runs up um, the South Carolina Assistive Technology Program. So, folks, if you're in South Carolina... Uh, you can go to this facility and they will let you borrow an AAC device for four to six weeks, give or take um, the level of the high techness. Um, if it's high tech, it's a shorter period of time. If it's mid or low tech, you can extend out the loan for the device. And you get to borrow it for free. If you don't live nearby um, her office, then um, they will ship it to you for free. But that at least is the children that I'm seeing access to a functional communication device for us to start the groundwork for communication trials um, with a speech generating device. And, and normally what happens is that while I'm doing my AAC trials, we're typically in the transition process to the public schools. And that's where from a home health schools issue, I tend to see the point of system breakdown there. So we're doing a trialing of a device at home. And then the schools, um, if they're aware of an AAC device being trialed, um, they may be trying a different device, they may be trying a different approach. Uh, they may think that the child's functioning higher or lower than what the home health SLP is seeing, give or take the different environments. Kids perform differently in different environments. And we forget that. Uh, we, we assume that what the kid's capable of doing it at home, they're capable of doing at school, but that may not always be the case. So um, what one trick that has worked um, for us um, has been getting, um, I have the families take videos of me working with their kid uh, on their communication device to share with the schools, um, especially, you know, I mean, they, they, it's their video, it's their cell phone usage. I don't mind them taking a, a quick clip. And then they email it to the school team. And then getting that referral, as soon as we start the IEP process, getting the referral from the get-go for um, the assistive tech eval. Um, that has always been, I have found that if we can go in the door with that referral in hand, request in hand, um, we, we catch more flies, so to speak. So... Uh, and on that note, one thought, um, I know you and I have done 
a lot of work driving um, core vocab. That core vocab, those first 100 words, isn't that a perfect overlap with the Dolch first 300 word readers, reading words? I don't do reading. You do the reading. You're really good at it. <laughs> no, really, I don't do the reading, but um, my daughter's doing the reading and the Dolch words are pretty similar. And I think the other thing that is really important as I know with the one child that you particularly we dealt with last year, she was operating a four switch at home, but wasn't even making a choice between two at school. Yes. But what we found was that the way she was positioned at home made her work less hard to position her body in space. So she was probably able to communicate better because she wasn't working so hard to hold her head up and hold her body up and, all of those things where we were asking her to do too many things at once for where she was. So I think that those videos, even if it's, even if the school's using a, a technology device that's very similar, you know, we can't always get the exact same thing. Sometimes those videos are like, oh, well, positioning might have a lot to do with this because in the videos that she's doing at home, she's like, laid out and she's not trying to hold her head up because her head's fully supported. But when we try to do it at school, we're assessing how she can do it propped in a chair that she's still learning to sit in. Um, so I think that was a really big eye opener on that particular case with us is that, you know, sometimes those videos, they're not just they're, as long as they come in the context of look what they did today. We're so proud of them. Yes. Not you're not doing this. And I think that's a big piece of how it needs to be worded from parents, from the school, you know, look at the awesomeness that your child did. This child did today. We're so proud of them. You know, this is what they're using in the video. Cause I know you can't see it really well. Cause that particular family kept their house very dark. So it was very hard to see exactly what she was doing. So I think it's important that the it's shared in the light of look at this, look what we're doing, like look how excited we should be. Cause I think, especially with the medically complex, medically fragile, more severely impacted population, it's those little baby steps that we're celebrating and all of us should be celebrating for our kids. So, you know, just like I want to be able to send you, look, they took their first two steps, you know, they use the device for the first time, you know, and I can respond back to you with, Wow, that's awesome. I'm glad they're using four. Maybe I'll try a different position when I do it. I'm going to talk to the PT about where we could yeah. go next. Um, yeah. So it's it's all about looking at the whole light of those videos. And I think videos from school slash videos from home put together really give a better picture of the whole child than we're getting, you know, we get in the snapshot of a school day or the snapshot of your speech session. You know, mom and we have to realize that when you add our, our three-year-olds come 15 hours a week, our four-year-olds come 35. When you add 15 hours a week of school in, you're also adding extra distractions of all these kids over here. And you're adding fluorescent neon lights that most of our kids have not really been exposed to because it's not what you have at home. And you're adding... Um, the rooms echo and it's very sterile and there's new smells and there's new feels. And, and the air conditioner goes buzz and, you know, the every time I flush the toilet or whatever. So you're adding so many different factors when you're at school. But it's good to know that in this position with this level of distraction, this is where we're going so that we can say, well, 
we just got to get them there in this environment. We've got to show that in this environment. And I think we get lost in what's I've written on a sheet of paper. We get lost in what their goals are. We get lost in the routine and the data. And sometimes we forget about the, the that they're a little human in there yes. and that they have a lot of, they, I think more often than not, these kids have a lot of capacity and they know so much and they understand so much of what we're saying, but we have to figure out getting it out and getting the expressive language. Because I think if their motor skills were not standing in the way, we would be able to see a huge receptive language out of a lot of these children. Um, and one of the comments that's been made to me several times in my career is, I love that you talk to them like there's nothing wrong with them. But why would I talk? To, why would I talk to them any other way? They're yeah. still a, a, a little person, and they still, you know. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I, your tube that hurt when I put the feeding tube in today? You kind of flinched at me, you know. And you're paying attention to that. And when you acknowledge how they're feeling and you talk to them, these kids really do respond, and they look at you like, "Yeah, you know, don't do that again tomorrow." <laughs> you know, they they definitely, you know they get it and they understand it. I had one little boy today and this melted my heart. Every time one of his particular friends walked away, he would cry and he's not mobile. He doesn't really reach out and activate. We're using eye gaze to determine what he's looking at. But every time she left his sight line, he would, tears would roll down his face. As soon as, she came, as soon as she came back, he'd smile. He was sitting there and I swear, I know that they say they can't control their tube feeds and you're putting it in, but this little boy will hold his tube and he won't let the food in if he doesn't want you to feed him that day. Yeah. So his buddy came and stood next to him and was helping hold the bolus feeder with us. He ate like a champ and he laughed and he smiled and he just wanted to be a five-year-old with his buddy there. You know, yeah. he didn't, he was, he's trapped in his body, but his mind is in a different place. And I think that we really have to work with these kids to figure out the very best way for them to communicate because they want to. We just have to figure out how to provide that to them. This is what I love about you. Yes, you see, you see their heart, honey. You act like their heart. And that's what we have to remember. We need to work together as a team. We need to do leave no stone unturned between the IFSP team and the IEP team. Because when we work collaboratively, when we, as a dear friend says, build that bridge, we can help these babies find their words and grow as a person. So, Karina, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank yep. you for having me. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember... Feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies.